Psalm 90, beginning in verse 1, let's read it together. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. That your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Father, uh, we need to hear from you. Don't need to hear from me. Uh, I don't have much to say, but we do need to hear from you, Father, particularly uh, a psalm that tells us in such vivid and poetic and powerful ways about who you are. So, Lord, this morning, may we hear not just the truth about you, but may we hear also the truth about ourselves. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been looking forward to getting to this point in our series in the Psalms. Psalm 90 is one of my three favorite Psalms. It's an old friend, and I found it to be a particularly faithful teacher. See, I grew up in a tradition that tended to be very man-centered when it came to how the Bible was read and taught. And so as a young seminary student, I was assigned Psalm 90 and told not to look at it and figure out what it was going to say to me, but rather I was told to find the attributes of God that Moses lists for us in this oldest of the Psalms. The Lord used that assignment and he used this text in a mighty way in my life then as I rediscovered this past week, he continues to use it in a mighty way. Well, we have two tasks ahead of us this morning. First, we want to wrestle with Moses' words in Psalm 90. 
For indeed, Moses does tell us about the nature and character of the God that we serve and the God we worship. But there is a second task before us as well. You'll note that in your Bible, before the heading that in the ESV says from everlasting to everlasting, there is there in all caps something that lets us know that we've now entered book four of the Psalms. Now, just to remind us, there are five books in the Psalms. And for a while, for a long time, in fact, people thought the Psalms were just this sort of random gathering of books. And there wasn't particularly any rhyme or reason to why the books were put the way they were. Uh, but we've now recently, in the past probably 40 years, uh, folks are arguing that no, uh, there there is a method to the madness in the Psalms. Book three, as we made our way through it, particularly over the last uh, nine psalms we've noted are psalms that are about destruction, devastation, and lament. The psalmist is wrestling with the fact that God's people have lost the land. They have broken the covenant. Where they have been unfaithful, God has been faithful. And so the Davidic king now is in prison in Babylon. In fact, I was reading uh, this past week, the last king of Judah uh, ended his reign in a rather ignominious fashion. Uh, we're told that the king of Babylon gathered his sons, uh, the sons of King Jehoiakim, uh, and put them to death in front of him. And then immediately after all of his sons were put to death, they put his eyes out. So the last thing that he saw was his sons being put to death. He was then taken into captivity uh, where he was a guest at the king's table and died in captivity uh, as, uh, I guess you could put it, as a forced guest of the king of Babylon. Jerusalem has fallen. The Davidic king does not sit on the throne. The psalmist has been wrestling with the destruction, the devastation. The psalmist is crying out to God, trying to make sense of the events that have happened. So why then do the compilers of the book of Psalms place Psalm 90 first in book 4? Why would we want to look back as we try to make sense of the destruction and devastation that we've witnessed in book three. What are the compilers doing? Why in the world would you put the oldest psalm in the entire, in the entire book of Psalms at this place, the beginning of book four? So that's the second question we want to try to wrestle with. Not just what is Moses saying, but why do we think is this psalm here? What's it doing here? Well, one of the things that we want to note as we get into the text is that Moses is using contrast to tell us uh, some truths. He's telling us the truth not only about God, but he's telling also telling us the truth about humanity. And so, we're trying to capture those two things in our 
uh, big idea for this morning. You'll note it's in your bulletin on page 5. And our big idea is this, God's eternality and grace are the answer to the Cain-like wanderings of our race. God's eternality and grace are the answer to the Cain-like wanderings of our race. So let's note what it is that Moses is doing. The top and the tail of this psalm are focused on God. Verses 1 to 2 tells us about God's eternality. And verses 13 to 17 speaks to us about God's graciousness. The middle sections then, verses 3 to 6 and verses 7 to 12, stand in contrast to what Moses is telling us about God. God is eternal, but we are not. God is a God of grace, which is particularly good news because we are rightfully under God's wrath. So let's look at these four points in turn first. God is eternal. God is eternal. I love the beautiful way that Moses speaks of the fact that there's never been a time in which God is not, and there will never be a time in which God will not be. Look at the end of verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When children ask the question, who created God? We know the answer is, well, no one created God. God's always been. There's never a time in which God will not be. But I love that Moses pairs this eternality of God with the very startling and reassuring fact that God then is the dwelling place of his people. Did you see that in verse 1? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. We start then to see in this opening verse why the compiler of the book of Psalms has put Psalm 90 here. God's people, in the aftermath of the destruction and devastation that has been brought about by the Babylonians, are homeless. They don't literally have a dwelling place. They are in exile. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The promised land has been lost. And yet, God's people still have their God. We see that illustrated for us very powerfully in the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is taken into exile with the rest of of, uh, the inhabitants of of Judah by the river Kabar. He's wondering what's going on, what's going to become of us, uh, what's going to happen. Ezekiel is also seen the glory of God depart from the temple. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel has this beautiful vision of God and the the chariot, the throne of God, literally coming and, and moving with His people. People in exile know and they are they are assured that their God is still with them. Now, we see similar kinds of language, and we understand it's a similar kind of circumstance in Revelation chapter 1. When John tells us he likewise is homeless, he has been exiled. He's been exiled because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of living and presiding in Galilee or in Jerusalem, John is in exile on the island of Patmos. 
and using much the same imagery, the resurrected Jesus appears to John in the island of Patmos. God is with His people. He's not leaving them. He's not deserting them. Yes, they are homeless. Yes, they are exiled. Yes, they have lost their place. But God has not abandoned them. God is still with them. And Moses tells us that not only is God with his people, but God is their dwelling place. It's interesting, I I was thinking about sort of, uh, in thinking about this question of why put Psalm 90 here and why why would the compilers put this here? Uh, you, You have a man who lost the promised land speaking now to a group of people who also lost the promised land. Remember Moses, because he struck the rock instead of speaking to it, was told by God, you're not going to go in the promised land. And so we know that he goes high up on a mountain where he can see the promised land. The Lord shows it to him, but Moses doesn't get to enter in. He loses it. And he's writing then to people who once had a home, who could once claim that the land flowing with milk and honey that their God had given them, that was their dwelling place. But because of their sin, they lost it. It's interesting then, isn't it, that in our New Testament reading for today, Jesus takes this idea that God is our dwelling place and he builds on it. In fact, he tells us that he is the one who goes and prepares the place with his Father for us. Our God is eternal. And Moses lets us know that one of the amazing things about the eternality of our God is that God is the very dwelling place of his people that's a dwelling place that we cannot lose it's a dwelling place that's never going to erode or crumble it's a dwelling place that's not going to be destroyed or fade away the eternal god is the dwelling place of his people now as we said moses uses contrast so that brings us to our second point God is eternal, but we are not. We are ephemeral. If you're wondering, why are you using an SAT word there? Uh, it's because it, it, you have eternal and ephemeral. It's, it's alliterated. Brings out the contrast. You're going, well, what does ephemeral mean? Well, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, ephemeral means lasting a very short time. God is eternal, but we are not. There's never a time in which God was not, but there was a time certainly in which we were not. Now it's interesting in the old Anglican book of common prayer, uh, this passage would have been read during the funeral service, reminding folks who were in attendance that we will all go the way of the person who is currently lying in the box in front of them. I also appreciate what uh, church yards, church sanctuaries, church uh, what church layouts used to be like. It used to be uh, that churches had a graveyard just outside of them. 
And so in order to go to church, you had to walk through the graveyard in order to enter into the church, which is, I think, a very powerful reminder that we do not last long. Moses tells us in verse 3 that the Eternal One is sovereign even in this. You, God, return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. God is eternal. We are not. And God is sovereign even in the midst of this. One of the more powerful books I remember reading uh, when I was, it, it came out uh, a little later, I was, I was in seminary actually at the time. It was a book written by John Piper entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. He's reminding us all that, you know, our lives are short and we find ourselves currently in the midst of a society that says, hey, the goal of your life is to stop working and basically do whatever you want to go do as quickly as possible. And so Piper tells the story famously about uh, an investment banker and his wife. They worked really hard to retire early, and now their entire days, uh, they retire, they move to Florida, and now their entire days are out. They have a large seashell collection, and so that's what they spend their days doing. And Piper says, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that is a tremendous tragedy. We don't have very many days we are not eternal creatures. And so to stand before the living God and to say to him, hey, look at my seashells. Piper reminds us is a horrible waste of our life. I love the way the, psalm, the hymn writer puts it, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. God is eternal. And we are ephemeral. Well, as if that wasn't enough to cheer our, us and to uh, encourage us on a Sunday morning, not only is our life temporary, but we learn, thirdly, that we are under wrath. We are under wrath. You can imagine, can't you, the folks, folks in post-exilic Israel reading the words in verse 7, and saying, oh, man, Moses, you know exactly where we are coming from. For we are brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath and we bring our years to end to an end like a sigh. Three times in these five verses, Moses mentions that we are living under God's wrath. And we need to understand that living under God's wrath is not just an issue for the folks that Moses was leading out of bondage in Egypt. <clears throat> it was not just an issue for Israel and Judah in the ancient Near East. But living under the wrath of God is a human being issue. Adam and Eve, you might recall, lost their home as well because of their disobedience to God and His Word. 
Cain was told by God after he murdered his brother Abel that he was going to be a sojourner, a vagabond and a wanderer upon the earth. And the Bible tells us then poetically that uh, he goes west of the land of Nod and there wanders the rest of his days. See, friends, part of living under God's wrath means that we are, by definition, homeless. We, too, are wanderers and vagabonds. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about this text is that, yes, Moses tells us the truth about God in a very powerful, in a very poetic way. But he also tells us the truth about ourselves. There is no, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you in this text. There is no, well, you know, you're not great. But let me tell you, your neighbor's worse than you are. No, there is no, relatively speaking, there's no grading on the curve. Moses is telling us the truth about who we are as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And so he ends then. In verses 11 and 12, Moses applies the text for us. What are we supposed to do as those who are living under wrath? Look at verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So let's ask ourselves the question. When's the last time we considered the power of God's anger? When's the last time we were fearful of the wrath of God? Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get heart of wisdom. Friends, understanding that our lives are ephemeral and we are living under the wrath of God is not meant to be this huge downer. Rather, it's meant to drive us to number our days that God would teach us to do so and that that would then result in wisdom. See, this is not just God being some sort of a great cosmic downer like, oh, I'm eternal and you're not. You're under my wrath. No, this is God telling us the truth about ourselves so that we may, as he says in verse 12, that we may get a heart of wisdom, that we would number our days, that in knowing the truth about ourselves, our lives would not pass under this vapor of foolishness, but the rather we would act and we would live wisely as God's people understanding that we are strangers and sojourners, that we are just passing through. It's interesting, isn't it, in the New Testament, the idea of being an exile and being a stranger and being a sojourner, it carries a very different connotation. See, when we live in a world that is at odds with God and we find ourselves having been reconciled with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we then understand that, oh yeah, we're homeless, but it's not because of God's wrath. It's not because of God's judgment. 
No, we're homeless because this world is not our home. We are homeless because the place in which we are really looking forward to, namely, God himself being our dwelling place, cannot be here and now. (coughs) That requires new heavens, new earth. And so Peter, the writer of the book of Hebrews, the apostle Paul, All the New Testament writers remind us as God's people, you're a stranger, you're an exile, you're a sojourner, not because you're under God's wrath, but because the world in which we live is under the wrath of God, but we have been reconciled to him. That brings us then to our fourth and final point, our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God of grace. What do we need? What do we, finite human beings living under God's wrath, what do we need? Look at the words he uses. Lord, have pity on us. Satisfy us with your steadfast love that we would rejoice, that we would be glad. Twice he speaks of this desire to be glad. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. What do we need? We need God's grace. I love the different ways he puts it. We need his favor. We need his pity. We need his steadfast love so that we could rejoice and be glad. See, Moses isn't saying these things thinking that God's going to hold out on us. Moses is praying these things, understanding that God is a God of steadfast love, that God will return, that God will have pity on his servants, that God will make them glad and joyful, that God will indeed bestow his favor on his people. As we come to the table this morning, we see two things existing together that Moses puts together for us, but we don't think often that they should be mentioned in the same sentence. We are under wrath, and God is a God of grace. And the table is a picture both of the wrath of God and the grace of God. It's a picture of the wrath of God because... It's on the cross that the Son of God took on the sins of God's people and suffered and was humiliated and died, not for his own sin, but for ours. And the Bible tells us that what was most excruciating about Jesus' experience on the cross was not merely the physical anguish of his suffering. But what was most excruciating was that God poured out, God the Father poured out on God the Son his just and righteous wrath for our sin. In the broken body and shed blood of of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a picture of God's wrath. And yet the same table speaks to us of God's grace. The same table reminds us 
that the God who poured out his wrath on his son is the same God who invites us to come to the table. It's the same God who tells us that we can dwell with him through his son. The one whose blood was shed, the one whose body was broken. The God whose iniquities have been set, who our iniquities have been set before him. And our secret sins in the light of his presence, that same God still calls us sons and daughters. And he invites us to come and to be with him and to eat with him and to dine with him. Friends, this beautiful picture of God's wrath and God's grace is seen for us this morning as we come to the table. So let's come. Let's come understanding that the God who is eternal invites us to come and to dwell with him. And we can do that only through the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the hope that you give to us. Thank you uh, that your word tells us the truth not just about who you are, but, Father, also the truth about who we are. And in so doing, Lord, you you give us hope. Thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. And thank you for the gift of the table in which we see uh, pictured for us. We can literally uh, see and feel and taste and smell this amazing juxtaposition of wrath and grace. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.